Welcome to Deep Shift, a show exploring the vibrant new future of a planet awakening. Welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Shift. I'm Michael Armstrong, and my guest today is a holistic health psychologist, futurologist, and author. She is a guest lecturer at the University of Cambridge. She's been featured in Psychology Magazine, Women's Health and Fitness, BBC Radio, and many more. She's a graduate of the University of Cambridge in Experimental Cognitive Psychology and Neuroscience. Salima Velu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael, for having me. It's so great having you here, and you're over the pond in Cambridge. I am indeed, yes, in Blighty, in the UK. And so it's noon here in Oregon, and it, it, what time is it over there for you? It's, um, it's 8 p.m. here. Okay. So I want to I wanna just jump in. I, I find what you're working on fascinating. I know you're working on a book, and you've got a lot of stuff going on uh, that deals with our human connection with technology, with the connection of mental health, which I think is so important right now. And I guess a good place to start would be, uh, how did you get into the field that you're in? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll try and make it um, brief. I mean, my journey really started, um, I've always been interested in mental health because uh, myself, I probably just over 20 years ago, well, probably just under 20 years ago, um, I had a bit of a burnout um, and so I suffered, I experienced firsthand what it was like to, um, deal with, um, having a mini breakdown and having anxiety. Um, and I actually used yoga. I had a friend that used to teach yoga and she was telling me how good yoga was, you know, to, um, steady the mind and to work through things. And so really my journey started um, the interest in, in, in philosophy and mental health and philosophy around our behavior and mental health started from my, my own mental demise, should we say. Um, and then it began to become a catalyst, which forced me to really reassess where I was going and how I was living. So I used it as, as, a, as, a, as a pause, as a reset, which is what I feel most people are confronting now. And obviously not everyone has the tools to confront it in a way that can be um, positive or productive. So that's how my interest started in my thinking and my behavior started with the yoga. And then later on, unfortunately, my mother suffered with Alzheimer's um, for many years, actually for nine years. And so that became the second catalyst in my journey and that's what led me to to go back to university to study the science of of how the brain informs behavior and where the mind comes into that um, equation. So really, then I saw an opportunity to look at it from two different perspectives or two perspectives. One science, obviously, the you know the black and white stuff what we can see and then the esoterical the eastern side uh you know the more implicit side of what we can't see but we may feel 
And I think that they're two very, when you bring those two mediums together, they can really act as a powerful modality for hearing, uh, for, for healing, but also to help people become informed about their behaviors in such a way that allows them to maybe take a look as they haven't taken a look before, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. And, and so, uh, go ahead. And so, really, sorry. So, I just wanted to add to that. So, really, like, I've been teaching yoga, I've taught in New York, I've taught in LA. I've spent a lot of time in America because I did my training with Jeeva Mukti in New York and with Shiva Ray in LA. And a lot of my teachers are American. So I've spent a lot of time practicing and looking at the behavior and mind from lots of different esoterical or Eastern lineages connected with yoga and philosophy. And then obviously when I was at university, um, I've, studied initially I studied coaching I did a degree in coaching because I was already coaching uh with doing the yoga and for me it just seemed a natural progression so you've got the yoga you've got the healing you've got the mind you've got the body and then moving it sort of more from the east into the western aspects of looking at the behavior, people's behavior and patterns that are causing them to become stuck and ways to hijack, you know, the least desirable ones as a way for them to unlock their code, um, to live their potential. And that's why I was really drawn to coaching. Although yoga isn't therapy. And um, I mean, you know, that's a whole, I mean... (laughs) That's a whole yeah. other debate. You know, it depends on which side of the fence you sit on. I, you know, a lot of my teachers say yoga isn't therapy. As a therapist and having seen both sides of the equation, I think yoga does have its place in therapy. I think the only drawback is that we may have a lot of people that are teaching yoga that think they are therapists without necessarily doing the real uh, training or having degrees to be able to use that as a benchmark to help them understand how to help people um, in a way that is individual rather than just going for one approach. So for me, it's always, for me, it's always being about drawing on many different approaches that for me, that makes more sense because people then have a better chance of finding a fit that will really help them rather than just saying, Oh yeah, I'm just going to use positive psychology or you know, just do this in yoga and you'll be fine. And it's like that it, it doesn't work like that. Not, not if you want it to be sustainable, it might become like a sticky plaster that's, plastering over the cracks but you know like with anything you have to get you have to get you know you have to go down and you know you have to go deep 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 undercover it reminds me of that um phrase of Eddie Murphy and he says you have to go deep 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 undercover as therapists and as yoga teachers we have to go like really deep 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 um and we need many tools to do that 
And if you've got a closed mindset into one approach, then I don't think that you can be uh, as effective to the people that you're trying to help. And then basically from the coaching uh, degree, I then went on and did um, cognitive psychology and neuroscience. So that, again, it was, it felt very natural for me. It felt a very natural progression. I was already at the university. They'd already had approved me (laughs) almost um, to um, flow into the, into the next um, course, into the next degree. And it was such a magical time because, you know, at 49, I never thought I'd be going back to university to study. So that was a huge catalyst as well. And for you, what, how did the yoga help? You said the yoga helped you kind of get out of the slump that you were in. Yeah, yoga, for me, I never went to yoga. Funny enough, I never went to yoga for the physicality. I was really drawn to wanting to know more about how I could understand my mind and, how, and, 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 and the tools that I could use to help me find a degree of acceptance with some of the traumas that I've been through and to not become uh, stuck in the past or feel that I didn't have any alternative but to stay where I was doing what I was out of obligation without going into too much detail so for me I was looking for a springboard that would help me jump from one mindset um, and then take me to uh, potentially another area that I would have a greater sense, or I could see, you know, I'd have a greater expansion of vision um, and knowledge. And that, to me, that was incredibly healing. I mean, to be honest, when I went to Jiva Mukti, when I did the Jiva Mukti training in 2009, that was like an emotional boot camp. I mean, that was, I like to say I had three, I've had many, many catalysts in my life, but that was definitely one of them because oh, it was, if anybody does Jiva Mukti and they've been on the teacher training they're there, and this is obviously going out, you know, not just in the States or the UK, but everywhere, but especially the Americans uh, you will understand what I mean. I mean, it's it's like an emo- uh, emotional boot camp. And so for me, that was incredibly therapeutic because I was in a support mechanism that allowed me to face the darkest aspects or facets of myself. And mm. then I had the tools to to move forward. And And, and what I noticed was that my memory and my cognition started to improve my articulation the way that I would articulate a conversation with someone suddenly changed so I found that super interesting Mm, interesting yeah it's fascinating how when a mental block is is removed or healed how much easier it is to relate with other people and how our personality even changes Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, my other, one of my other teachers, Elena Brower, she said a few years ago, I think it was about three years ago, she said, Oh, Salima, you become so much softer and round. Uh-huh. And, um, and it, it, you know, she meant it in a way that, you know, I've softened the hardened edges that I had 
put up to to mm. deal with what I had to deal with and you know I'd soften I'd soften the exterior edges of my physical form in a way that would allow me to have more honest interactions with people and also more importantly how to speak my truth in a very dignified compassionate manner so I found from that that a lot of relationships or friendships that I had changed because I had changed and um, the realization was that you know I was able to decipher which relationships were beneficial for me and which weren't and when I mean beneficial I don't mean one-sided I mean in any relationship there has to be a mutual giving and receiving and I found that in my coaching that carried then that essence was carried across and reaffirmed to me when I was studying coaching psychology, that the interaction between the coach and again in, in, in psychology and the therapist and the patient or the client has to be a two, it should be um, a two way uh, street, you know, it should be a giving and receiving to a degree obviously with boundaries, (laughs) um, between two people. So I began to feel a lot more confident and fun. And it was very strange because what I found was the people that then started to come to me for coaching sessions or therapy sessions, oh my God, I could so see myself mirrored. And it's like they were mirroring back the earlier facets of me. Uh, so that was very interesting to to see, you know, people, some people want to confront uh, profound questions about themselves and other people might not want to. And of course, it's a personal choice. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. Self-growth work is is one of my favorite things. And I just think it's so important to do. I've done a lot of workshops uh we're emotionally going really deep and healing anything from the past. Uh, for me, it was also kind of speaking my truth and speaking up at growing up very shy. I wouldn't talk and uh, yeah, it really helped me open up. And I love how you said speaking your truth in a dignified, compassionate manner. I was wondering if you could go into that. How does somebody speak their truth in a dignified, compassionate manner? <laughs> That's the $64,000 question, right? Um, Okay, let me think how I can put this. From my observation of my personal, my own experience, and from observing other people that I've had that have wanted to work with me, and also, um, to be honest, all my students that have been with me for many years, I've seen... You know, as a teacher, and this is the beauty, this is the duality of doing this work. You know, you come from one, you know, you come from one paradigm, the East, you, you, you're able to, to, to body read people, view people. And then from the West, you can make it more analytical. I don't think it works if you just, if you just use one of those modalities or one of those paradigms. Like I said earlier, I think that you have to use both. What I found was that people that had low self-esteem 
low self-confidence had come from a codependent relationship who had had trauma in their early years, suffered bullying, uh, eating disorders, issues with drugs and alcohol, you know, the normal the normal least desirable ones, <laughs> um, addictions. I found that those people were the people that really struggled. They didn't know. They got so lost in their story, in their narrative, that they weren't able to weave a, a, a new one. And, and it's not as simple as that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, you can only help people, you know, so far. You can only take the horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink the water. But what I found for me was when I slowed down, it was when I actually learned how to listen, how to refine what I was hearing from other people. It gave me an insight into what I thought was one thing actually ended up being something else completely different. And so with that clarity or with that insight came and with the slowness came the ability for me to really articulate to myself, you know, if something was serving me or if a relationship serving me or if a job, you know, a certain aspect of my career was serving me and what mattered to me the most. And I think in a, in, in our society that is technologically driven and everybody wants everything tomorrow, like now, not even tomorrow, (laughs) like now everybody wants everything now. I think there is a, a reluctant before COVID there's a real reluctance for people to slow down. And I saw that in my classes. I had students tell me, you know, I don't want to do meditation. I don't want to sit still. I want to do vinyasa. I want to like move, move, move. And I'm like, it's the last thing you should be doing because you're just pushing everything you need to address. You'll, you'll keep pushing away and then it's going to come like a snowfall and it's going to come tenfold. And then you're going to, you know, you won't be able to cope with the fallout. And so I think, in order to speak your truth in a compassionate and dignified manner, you need to have a good sense of self. You need to have faith in yourself. You obviously you need confidence, faith, trust. And of course, we all are fearful. You know, fear is, is part of who we are. You know, fear stops us from you know can potentially you know it's a fight or flight response but the problem is in today's society a lot of people are living on that constantly and that's what's driven the mental health crisis to escalate and technology is is an aspect that has accelerated that with certain conditions and in certain personalities so I think you know when we can't when we're on when we're on technology all the time we might not have 
the ability to come away and be able to sit with ourselves. And I think the hardest thing, forget about, forget about headstand or wrapping both feet behind your head. But I think the hardest thing for most people to do is to actually be able to sit quietly with themselves without their phone, without their computer, without children around, without their partner around and actually ask themselves if they're really happy and if they're not why aren't they you know and be the the first step to 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 move yourself out of something that doesn't serve you is to be really honest with yourself and I think when you part of the work I do and and in the book I talk about helping people decipher between two realities which in the act modality action and commitment therapy we call fusion and diffusion and in in my observation a lot of people you know it's an occupational hazard I can't help myself sometimes I can't I can't turn myself off like when I was before the lockdown and when I was still going into London to teach at the weekends you know I love sitting on the tube and studying people you know, I've actually got really good at it um, because that's something I've been doing for 20 years. But it is interesting how people have this fear about what they might find. And I think in order to speak compassionately, you have to be compassionate with yourself. In order to act in a dignified way, you have to respect yourself first. It's the old adage, isn't it? You know, you can't really love someone else until you learn to love yourself. And we may all think that we love ourselves, but do we really? You know, that's the other question. You know, a couple of exercises I give people to do is to like, you know, stand in front of the mirror and like praise themselves, not from an egotistical point of view, but look at your face and notice everything about it, you know. And affirm how amazing it is that you're actually on the planet, especially in, a, in the um, midst of everything that we're experiencing. And if you're fit, fitish and, and well, you know, and it's, it's like reaffirming this sense of gratitude, which I've spoken about many times in the psychology, um, in the psychology article, I think I spoke about that as well. Not in a, not in a fluffy way, but just in a very realistic way. And I think the more real you can be with yourself, the more real you can be with others. And, you know, it's a fact of life. Not everyone's going to like that because they might feel threatened, but then that's not your thing. That's coming from their insecurity. So that's why I find human behavior so interesting are you guys still in lockdown? Yeah, we are. We Well, we're sort of in the first phase of coming out of lockdown. But um, And what does that look like? <laughs> wow, that's a very good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the country's very confused because, obviously, there's England, Scotland, and Wales. And Scotland and Wales are still, like, major lockdown. Mm-hmm. But England... Boris Johnson has decided that there's going to be a certain 
laxing is very slight though of you know if you can't work from home you know then you can go into work but you can't use public transport you know you have to cycle or you have to walk or take the car mm-hmm. uh yeah it's very interesting and sort of i was just watching the news before i came on with you this evening and like with germany they're beginning to have second spikes and they have and they were they're like i think two or three weeks behind us so they are just re- relaxed their their lockdown and now it's it's starting again so it's a very interesting time and i think that you know humans <laughs> you know we like we like to think that we can control everything the reality is that we can't <laughs> um and and so this lockdown brings up a whole you know brings up a whole nother set of of mental health um perplexities yeah but at I'm the same time yeah i mean at the same time there's always you know i was saying to um in my online classes the other day i was saying you know, always try and find the positive in the negative as much as you can because that like flips a switch in your brain uh you know so if you feel you're going down the rabbit hole with the media come away from the media (laughs) and Mm -hmm. do you know and do something or just focus on what you're doing or what you're doing with your family or get creative and and channel your energy and channel your mind onto something else this is that's what's going to save people's sanity yeah and it's it's such an unprecedented event to have this many people inside their homes with their families, their loved ones, perhaps just by themselves. And like you said, a lot of people didn't want to slow down, but this is helping them slow down. You know, so there's the positive, yeah. but then there's also the fact that you know they are alone and, and they are with the same person for weeks and weeks yeah. and weeks. So there's so much from a mental health perspective. Um, what would you recommend people do from a mental health perspective? Uh, during this time like how can they stay fit mentally and and stay positive i think obviously it depends on it depends on who's in your household um but what i would what i would suggest what makes logical sense to me is if you are in your home with your children and your partner or just a partner or just your children where possible make sure that you know obviously you're doing things together and that's great you know i think there's i I think that's a good thing actually in in some instances because obviously we've got a whole nother issue going on with domestic violence and abuse you know this is not for that situation but i'm just saying uh, 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 sort of i'm trying to generalize in, in in a world that that doesn't exist so i don't want people to take me wrongly but if you are not in a domestic uh violent household or a situation and you are sharing your home with your family like i said then i think uh it's very important to make sure that you cut out a corner of your day for yourself and that may just be like 30 minutes just going for a run or doing a walk or getting out on the water, something, drawing some art. I mean, this is a great time to be creative. As you and me both know, my creativity is 
like going through the roof right now because we're not we're not doing what we normally do therefore we can actually if you're predisposed to wanting to express yourself with writing painting and like with you with your podcast this is a great time to do something like that so maybe if you've got a hobby that you always wanted to take up maybe now's the time to take it up you know so it's about trying to find balance like like me and people have said before but you have to actually commit to it because the other thing through my work and I've done it I've done it when I've been coached you know is about accountability to yourself you know you you have to hold yourself accountable in a way so you know if you for instance if you are spending like the morning with your children drawing painting or whatever make sure that in the afternoon you have some you time maybe even if you live in a bigger place you know you can sanction off the bathroom for half an hour and just give yourself a mini spa or a bath or something like that but it doesn't have to be anything elaborate but just something where you can be with yourself where you're not in that mode of giving to your neighbors giving to your family because the thing is that the other side of human behavior and this is what it comes back to what I was saying about giving and receiving we call it the rescuing syndrome you probably heard of it so if you're a giver you'll become the rescuer you want to rescue everybody else but who is rescuing you you know so in this current situation one way to build mental resilience is making sure that you look after yourself as well as looking after others does that make sense so much so yeah i i i think it's a very important point to focus on yourself because i know a lot of people who are listening a lot of people who are following the podcast are very compassionate people uh, very kind spiritually um focused people and sometimes we have, uh, we, we kind of want to help others. We're healers. Like we, we're, we're coaches. We're looking out for other people. We, we naturally want to Your help. Your earth them. element. In the, in the Chinese medicine, that's an earth element. And, but yeah. the, problem with, the problem with that characteristic or that personality is that you have to have boundaries within the giving. So this is where most people... You know, boundaries was a huge topic that I covered. I, I think I wrote a paper on it oh, uh, a- when I was at uni. It's a huge problem for most people in knowing what boundaries are and how to set them without being aggressive and without being a pushover, which is basically, I think, the point that you were going to come to. <laughs> <laughs> well, the point, yeah, it, it's essentially, yeah, focusing on yourself and pampering yourself and, and really looking at yourself. But Boundaries. I like that you brought that up because I was speaking with a, a friend about that who's also a coach, and she was talking about how uh, many, especially women, um, it's something that they they don't quite they, they haven't been taught it. Nice. No, so they get themselves into situations that they may not want to be in without mm. ever saying no to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, I just think this is something that we could be teaching kids. Like we should be teaching everyone that no is just as important as yes. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and also don't say yes when you mean no and vice versa, which is a common 
behavioral trait in, uh, yeah. in most people. <laughs> I've done that way too many times. <laughs> people pleaser. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's a tough one to get over because you want to, I, I wanted to make people happy. But I realized by nothing making wrong with people, that. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, it, it, as long as you're not making yourself unhappy by trying to make everyone else happy. Yes. And people love truth. They love truth. They love when you say no. They love when you have an opinion about something, a hard opinion about something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been an interesting sort of uh, last few years for me because of people that I was having friendships or relationships with, suddenly I got an opinion. And <laughs> when I went back to university, suddenly I came out of, of yoga mode you know, what I call pushover mode sometimes, um, and started to have my own take on things. And because I've worked in, in business, because, you know, my, my background is across all mediums, you know, I try and look at things from a broader perspective. And it's, it is so interesting. But I think people do respond to, to, they might not like the truth, but they actually have a greater respect for someone that can actually say what they mean and mean what they say. Yeah. And, and from a, a romantic perspective, I, I find it fascinating to learn what women like. And women love when a guy says no or says yes or says he wants this. When he speaks in certainties, mm. that is a no. It's, it's actually, for, for some women, it's, it's a turn on, which I just found to be very important information, right? Because I previously had just thought that, you know, you just want to make people happy. But that's not, that's not the case. You got to be truthful. and. Yeah really share from your mind and from your heart yeah. in a connected sort of way. And what I love about what you are up to and what you do is it seems as though you have this blend of psychology, spirituality, and technology, which is, is a fascinating combination to me. I think so important for the age in which we're living. And I know you're writing a book about our relationship amongst these technology, especially. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what your book's about, what prompted you to begin writing this book? Um, and I have so many more questions, but let's start there. <laughs> so the, the book is um, actually the essence of the book is about the nature and future of life and work. And uh, last year, I think in the year before, so over the last year and a half, I've done quite a few presentations at the University of Cambridge and also at psychology conferences, European um, psychology conferences, which was um, slightly scary <laughs> uh, because I'm an academic, but I'm not that academic. Um, and I was speaking about things that were academic and at the same time esoterical and you know some academics don't really get the esoterical and some do so that was quite a challenge but basically the the I did a series of um I did a series of presentations that I called the future of life and work and then over the last probably over the last six months I thought hmm do you know what? I really like the nature and future of life and work because human nature, nature is forcing us now with COVID 
to behave. We have to behave in a different way. It was nature. Nature did that. Unless there's some terrorist out there that's manufactured this COVID-19, which, you know, may be a possibility. But, you know, it's all about um, the, the, the nature and the future of life and work. And, and what it does is it, the, the reason I wrote the book is I really wanted to encourage people to be able to look at their patterns through various lenses or perspectives to help them understand uh, the code of who they are and then see if they can see any similarities and polarities between themselves or us as humans and the intelligence that we uh, are creating. So I'd always had an idea to write a book um, and I had lots of ideas, but like I said, it only really came together when I was writing these PowerPoint presentations and, and, and you know, speaking about them. Because the stuff I did with some of the magazines was uh, probably three years ago. So that was just when I had started on this trajectory of of trying to blend, you know, it's, 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 it's quite intricate. You have to blend it in a way that... M- well, you have to blend it and write it in a mutable language. I think that's the key. Um, so the real idea started um, when I was at university. I mean, it started through yoga. It was perpetuated when I was um, at university because I was able to make uh, clearer distinctions about the benefits of being able to draw on the um, East Enterical information and the western information basically like i said from what i had learned as a student and practitioner and then what i had learned as um, an academic and then what i found was that in my classes at tri yoga where i used to teach in london um i would always you know i'm quite philosophical person i love philosophy all kinds of philosophies and my dad was a great philosopher as well and so what I, te- what I tend to do, how I teach, and many people that have taken my class will know, is that I always have, you know, threads of philosophy and insights that combine science, technology, and psychology and the esoterical te- uh, teachings and I, 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 that I weave in, into my classes. And then people started, students came up and said, you know, why don't you start putting all these things that you're reading into a book? I was like, ha uh that's a good idea (laughs) so then they sort of like cemented the seed but I knew at the same time you know when I was looking you know because I did loads of research and you know just looking at the books that were in yoga centers and you know no disrespect to any of those authors or any of those books but I knew that I didn't just want to write a book that was about yoga or positive psychology because there's like thousands out there. And also that doesn't really represent my, my background and my knowledge. And then at the same time, if you look at traditional self-help books, they normally focus on one specific area and then they, you know, they make, they can make this promise It can come across that they make this promise, you know, that they're going to help you solve your imperfections. Um, And just like the law of of law of attraction and positive psychology, um, which is more based on on articulating your thoughts, you know, where speech 
where your thinking and your speech aligns. And there's something in that most definitely because we see that from the research that is come out of Australia on action and commitment therapy, which is the uh, modality that I use with my clients. So it's looking at how the science of language informs behaviors. So when I work with people, I predominantly look at how they're talking about themselves and what it is that they want to achieve. Uh, that's a whole nother conversation for another time, but that's a fascinating um, area. But um, none of them, like the self-help books or the law of attraction or positive psychology or yoga, none of them, as far as I'm aware, don't directly address the impact of how our relationship with technology will bring new challenges to how we feel about ourselves how we feel about others, how we interact with others, and what we experience. And that really was something that my mentor, um, who's a really well-known author called Char Wesmond, so she basically knocked, knocked Richard Branson off the best-selling, top of the best-selling list. So she was my mentor last summer, and she helped me get the, the um, craft the the real essence of the book and like that was a really interesting skill set and an interesting process to go through for eight weeks that was it was it was quite tough actually because a lot of people go oh yeah you're gonna write a book oh yeah it's easy and like actually do you know what it's not easy at all it's actually really hard um so yeah so that does that sort of answer the does that sort of answer the question the only other thing I would say is I was also very aware of how I want it to come across. So I wanted it, like I said, not to be too stodgy and too dogmatic and too academic. And I didn't want it to be too fluffy or too tech. So I've really written it coming from a viewpoint that I want it to be insightful and friendly, that like a guide almost, that explores some of these challenges and changes that we are experiencing and will continue to experience um, living, trying to live, you know, a conscious coexistence with this rising uh, development of technology and AI. And, and, and now, obviously, with COVID as well. I mean, probably the book is, is more, is going to be more relevant now than it was when I started writing it last year, which I find really interesting because I remember standing in front of the head of Penguin Books late September last year, uh, Joel and, and pitching, you know, doing a pitch for my book. And he really liked the, he could see where it was going, but obviously it wasn't the right time. And um, and now Flynn Coleman, she her book's coming out the end of the year, which is called The Human Algorithm. And it's similar to mine in some aspects, but then again, it's not similar uh, to mine. So, you know, my work and the book is really, this is how I see my work and the book as a way to really try and future proof people's nervous systems cognition and human values and I think like human values is something that people over the last eight weeks have suddenly come like suddenly it's like a reset it's like oh what really matters to me do you know what I don't actually want to go back to working seven days a week or six days a week I actually want to work more from home have more time with my family be able to do 
um, more stuff and, and people are cooking together and they're creating stuff together. And that's something that we've lost over the last 40 odd years. And now all of a sudden, guess what? There's a real opportunity to reconnect to that human essence of belonging, that connection to family, connection to great friends. You know, so again, it's just me trying to see the positive in the negative. Yeah, it's so relevant. I think more now than ever, this work-life balance, what people want, I think it's such perfect timing to speak about the nature and future of life and work. It's, it's, people are recognizing that the way things were done might not have been the best way to do it. Yes, yeah, agreed. And I, I think sort of coming up behind all of that is then, you know, um, you know, take out for us, for the Brits, you know, take out leaving the EU and now, COVID, you know, because that was our thing, you know, for months before COVID came, came for year, well, the last four years we've spent on whether we're going to come out of the EU, European Union, and that was a big part of people's lives here in the UK. And then, you know, the country was divided over whether we should leave or stay and then COVID came up. But in, in, in the background, behind all of these distractions is the evolution of greater intelligence. Let's not forget about that. So yeah. that can actually <laughs> pose an even bigger threat to human survival. And by that, you're um, talking about artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence? Oh, God. I mean, where do you start? <laughs> I mean... I love, you know, because I'm working on a project at the moment with an, with a Canadian tech startup on the next generation of chatbots um, for mental health, a conversational mental health AI. Interesting. Yeah, um, and that is, it sort of started last year. We're still having like lots of discussion, exploring lots of avenues because obviously with tech startups, it's all about funding and governments and private investors. And there's a lot of people out there doing um, not similar things, doing things in the same arena, but not quite in the way that, that our VSI AI want to do it. But getting back to your question, I love AI and I hate it at the same time. <laughs> so I, I love technology. I am a bit of a tech nerd. Um, but what worries me in the circles that I have been privy to in conferences and conversations and meetings um, is the the pace of how how quick things are evolving um and and from from many people that are working in the field you know co- coders and programmers and uh you know p- ahead of microsoft google microsoft all these people um so i think that the main problem before COVID and before the other distractions of Trump and <laughs> and the election and the EU, before those distractions, you know, the the the, the main uh, the main thing that we were beginning to start to look at was what we're creating and why we're we creating it. 
And that somehow got a little bit lost in the grand scheme of things. So ultimately, this book asks the question, because we can do something, does it mean we should? You know, are we, are we happy to go along for the ride um, of where technology is going to take us? Or do you actually want to say in how, um, you know, how we're going to shape this new world? You know, while we're distracted over here with COVID, there's, you know, the the general public are not having an opportunity because they're so fearful, obviously, rightly so, with what's happening. It's, you know, it's taking our attention away from something that could potentially be worse for us if we don't make the right decisions on how this is regulated. Um, And also to ask the question, ultimately, why are we doing what we're doing i mean there's a lot of great benefits um, health-wise obviously um health-wise in regards to treating health issues um you know it's a double-edged sword for me because you know it, it it can help solve health issues but at the same time it can create health issues um so i'm always trying to sort of look at both sides um both sides of the equation but when I started to really write the first chapter which I sent you um like we were saying before we came on air um that in the first chapter it sets out like a roadmap for the book and the book isn't huge it's only like 30,000 words it's not like a massive uh, massive book but it basically said it's it's a roadmap so the elements in the chapters are like signposts that will help people um, understand the directionality of, of what I'm asking them to think along the lines of. And I think that's really important as an author, rather than just trying to put too much, throw too much information at people, because otherwise, you know, we we're humans, we become a bit, too involved and we we're not able to decipher what's important information and what's just noise and i think in this society at the moment there is a lot of noise you know i mean obviously it's quiet but i mean there's a lot of noise in the media with covid um there's a lot of busyness even within the stillness and i think people might be reluctant to take a step back because they feel they should be planning ahead but the the reality is from a behavioral point of view we don't know we don't really know what's going to happen next so is it such a bad thing to be able to take this time to sit and reflect on other elements and you know that's why i think this is a a good time you know over the next few months and hopefully if i can get my book deal (laughs) um you know this because this COVID isn't going anywhere and the issues we face with COVID and the issues we face with technology are only going to uh, move forward. So we can't get away. You know, you can't not, you can't not use technology and you can't believe that COVID is just going to disappear. So it's always, both of them are going to be here in our domain here on planet earth. So we have to find ways to be able to manage our lives around these two aspects. Mm, and speaking of te- like the, the integration of technology with our human psyche, Elon Musk, he was just on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about Neuralink, which is the connection, yes. like literally a, a, a technological connection that goes within yeah. 
brain. And he said within the year, it's going to go live. Um, and it's going to start with people who have uh, severe physical uh, disabilities, like perhaps yeah. paralyzed. And by putting this link in their brain, it yeah. will allow them to walk again. Um, but, you know, you take this f- a few a few years further and uh, all of a sudden it's going to make people hyper intelligent. It's going to improve people's memories to the point where they could relive memories, but they could yeah. change the but, memory and relive a changed memory. Yeah. And, you know, the thing with memories is that we have, you know, there, we have false memories all the time. Um, because it depends on our state when, when we have an experience, it depends on what our state is. And, you know, that's the classic, um, that false memories is a, is a classic condition that soldiers come back with. Um, you know, so, I mean, I love Elon Musk. I love him. (laughs) Um, I have to say he's, he's a bit out there, but I'm a bit out there as well. Um, and, (laughs) and I, I mean, he is truly a futurologist but he's a futurologist actually he's a little bit different to some of the others out there which I won't name that just want to see the end of the human race and I'm sorry but I just don't get that why why are you you know the whole singularity thing why my question is why why do we want to replace ourselves? I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't understand that. And I'm quite a logical, analytical academic. And I, I don't see any benefit to that. And funny enough, what you were saying, um, I was at a cyborg uh, conference. I think it was last, oh, it was probably this time last year, actually. I think I was at a cyborg conference at the University of Middlesex. And we did this whole day on um, cyborg, cyborg we were looking at the um the tech and the different variations and the classifications of cyborgs um and, and we're looking at it from a psychological point of view a physical um you know from a philosophical philosophical uh, can you say the word philosophical point of view uh, and then we were looking at it from a neuroscience point of view and a tech point of view and again it's people's perceptions because actually already like today for example my neighbor um, he has, he, he completely lost his hearing in one ear. And so he has the device that is actually embedded into his brain. So he actually looks like a cyborg. He's got like a little thing behind his ear that's attached. Um, and that actually allows him to lead a normal life. So like with Parkinson's, because when I was at the University of um, Burbeck in London, I did a paper on um, Parkinson's disease. And that is a truly horrible disease. Um, And the technology, the technology you're talking about, that's what they're exploring with with Parkinson's as well Mm -hmm. to, to stop the tremors. So, you know, without the tremors, you can have more or less a, a, a normal, a normalish life. And there's been a lot of success in the early trials. Um, well, what, when they trialed some of this cyborg um, technology, and and I was talking to the head of um, AI for Middlesex University, whose mentor was a guy called Daniel Walbert, um, who's the head of the Zuckerman Institute in New York for Mind um, and Behavioral Science. And he was the main, his work was the main work that I studied when I was at Cambridge on around um, 
the aspects of free will and movement and how movement affects our behavior. So, and it was very interesting talking to these guys because, you know, he was their mentor and he was at Cambridge for a while. And then I don't know where there is at Oxford, but then he, um, he went, he heads up um, the Zuckerman Institute, which is carrying out some really interesting um some really interesting trials and I've got some interesting papers coming out of here. But basically what you're saying is basically what Flynn Coleman saying, because she infers that, you know, the, the era of human intellectual um, superiority is really ending and that, you know, we, we, most people, you know, I'm just generalizing here, but most people don't understand this and that we need to plan uh, for this monumental shift, which I don't I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't actually agree with that in in some aspects because I I find it alarming that she would say that but not surprising and she's got a diverse background as well and she speaks about this stuff all the time she's much more famous than me (laughs) um but if I'm being honest um to me, that notion really challenges the concept around the value of humans, like the divinity of what makes us human, human values, human intellect, human emotion, um, you know, because our emotions inform our behaviors, our behaviors inform our emotions. That's all intellectual. Um, we haven't quite got to the stage yet, but it it's, it's coming that machines will at some point become able to be emotive um if you people go onto my website there's a couple of presentations where i talk about the work um that was coming out of japan a couple of years ago around that aspect so i think you know what Elon Musk is is saying is is not necessarily well. It's definitely not the same as what she's saying. Although you know, in all due respect to her, she's also saying that you know it is helping society. It can help. It definitely can help society. But if there's no guidelines and there's no ethics, then we are treading on very dangerous ground which could come back to bite us in the butt because at the end of the day artificial intelligence uh and artificial greater intelligence which is which is basically you know imminent to a degree um is really redefining who we're becoming and how and how we become nick how we evolve you know like what you were saying, you know, who are we becoming and how are we going to evolve next? And, you know, this intelligence, it challenges, it's going to challenge our personal beliefs and values. And it is going to determine a, a new society, a new societal economic uh, world order. So we've got that going on in the background and we've got COVID that is forcing a new world order in regards to our economy. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, the value of, you know, the value of money, the value of what it's all these values are suddenly going to change because they, 
they you know it has to because you know like in um i don't know what they're doing in the states but in the uk here we have schemes running where our government is paying us to stay at home but you know mm. now that's been extended to october but how long can they do that for you know so is you know so then does money lose its value as we go through this process as well yeah we get yeah we got one payment here and and they're talking about perhaps another payment but it, it's not a monthly thing for for us in the states here um, but yeah the universal basic income is something that uh, is an option for the artificial intelligent future we live in and the you know evolution's not over it's going to keep going and and it almost feels like right now we are helping project where we're going to evolve into, whether it's going to be a cold, you know, human, more robot than human hybrid, or a a warm, you know, fully emotion, perhaps even more emotions, uh, spiritual being with maybe some technology that helps us uh, conquer diseases or paralysis or something along those lines. But I think in but I think unless people actually start to become very active, and this is why I'm part of the um, uh, the World Economic Forum, who's doing an amazing job at trying to regulate all this technology in many different domains, in many different professions, for um, in different instances. And I think you know, Flynn says, you know, is 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 critical that we do instill um this is just an important point that I, I i wanted to make you know in one aspect i agree with her again because she says you know we we have to instill these values ethics and morals into our robots and algorithms and other forms of ai um and develop policies you know um and mechanisms to protect the general public from what could be potentially threatening to to humans um you know, I'm a big, um, huge advocate of this, but the main problem that I have with that notion, and when I was talking to one of the founders of the tech company uh, that I'm working with at the moment, we were both saying, you know, um, we have hu- we as humans have barely mastered our own ethics and morals, so therefore, who is going to be responsible? <laughs> for you know creating these ethics and morals for these machine well for these intelligence because machines means like a structure but you know artificial intelligence doesn't need a structure it and and this is what elon musk is is saying you know it doesn't need it doesn't need to be housed in anything you know it's a bit like that um johnny depp movie when he takes his i mean i mean that movie was made i don't know like 15 20 years ago and yet literally that's what elon musk is (laughs) that's what's happening 20 years later we're actually doing it um (laughs) yeah like a robot hybrid human with yes and I think, you know, there's lots of other things that we have to look at. You know, we have to, we have to look at, you know, where, where we as human, you know, actually the same things are going to exist in machines as, as they do in us. You know, the narratives around biases and prejudices, you know, that's mm-hmm. something that um, Andrew Nigg talks about a lot from Stanford. He heads up uh, Coursera and um, he was a course lead in, in a couple of the courses I did. And something that he, I know that he's really concerned with at Stanford is, is like looking at these bi- biases. Um, 
in AI and, and, and how we can control the narrative. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think we, before we start to really get that down, the ethics and the morals into this next level of intelligence, that we need to relook at human motives, you know, money, power, and control are the fundamental drives of the human being. <laughs> um, you know, so I think that we, we need to be a bit more aware of, you know, how we would want this to look. And, you know, that was another reason that I, you know, the three, the three, because a, a, another journalist asked me this um, before Christmas. He said, what are the three main reasons for your book? You know, why, what, what does your book do? Why is it, why do people, why do people want to buy your book? And I was like, oh, <laughs> put on the spot. But, you know, for me, it just, you know, hearing people, watching what people are interested in you know i think that this this book really explores the 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 current trend which is on an up upward trajectory of um people's interest in science yoga spirituality um and ai and the public's growing fascination in and around technology and mental health and lifestyle um and i think that was already happening before COVID. And now those three points like technology, mental health and lifestyle, COVID's just exuberated that, that, that what people might have been looking at before, this situation has now just brought everything to the forefront. So that was one of the reasons. And then the other reason I wanted to write the book was to really help people create more psychological flexibility, um, to live a life of value, you know, get back to values in the age of technology, you know, how important that is. And people are experiencing that firsthand because of the situation we're going through. And then the really, the final one, and this is comes back, it sort of circles back to what we were just saying is I want, I want to really encourage people to take a greater interest and become more active in um, speaking out about AI and the good, the negative, what we're unsure of, you know, because, we at this moment in time, we still have the capacity to shape the, the, you know, to shape our future world. It's not all dependent on government and tech companies, but unless we stand up and unless we start to take a greater interest, guess what? It will be the Googles and the Facebooks and the governments and the, and and we've seen this already with five G and the mobile phone companies. You know, so like if you if you just don't want to do anything and sit back, uh, then you can't complain about what might happen next. It's the same old adage, right? But, um, yeah, you know, it's so been, important. Yeah. yeah. So to have a voice, to have an opinion, to speak up, to share with friends, to talk about it. Yeah. And it was funny because even when I started to, um, speak to my students about some of the points of the book, where after class and it was so interesting how so many people it just like started a whole different realm of conversation with people people were generally sort of interested in the topic matter and uh it, it it's i i think everyone can resonate with it that's why everyone can resonate with you know obviously life evolves people evolve our society evolves um but i think what's important is that the other reason I wanted to write this book loops back to what I was just saying is that I wanted to alert the reader to 
to take more of an active interest in their unconscious and conscious behaviors around the influence of um, tech, social media, algorithms, you know, and the, and the two states that they may experience um, as a result, which circles right back to the beginning of our conversation uh, when you asked me why I got into what I was doing. And, and something that I experienced um, in, in my burnout was this, this fusion and diffusion, you know, when you're, uh, when your thoughts become your reality and you can't diffuse from from each of those things. And add to that that you're in an enclosed space for prolonged periods of time, there's a greater tendency for people's thoughts to become their reality, which might not <laughs> necessarily be a good thing. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Your thoughts create your reality. Your thoughts become your reality. Which is great if you have positive thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but if, if you're but if, <laughs> but if you're getting if you're getting depressed and anxious because of the media or you're going on to social media, then this is where this modality really helps people be able to distinguish between the two. So it's very good. Um, modality to use for people that have got like mild depression, um, social anxiety disorder, um, digital distraction, um, obsessive comparison disorder, digital dependency. Those are the areas that I work with. So, you know, and that definitely is going to, uh, I should imagine as we come out the other side of this or keep in it, who knows what's going to happen. It's something that we will have to contend with because obviously if we hadn't had technology, we'd have, we'd have been screwed, completely screwed if we had no technology and COVID arrived. Right. So the good thing is that we have learned to live a slightly different life during this process with technology. But one of my main concerns is what's going to happen when we start to be able to integrate back into society, will people be able to have fulfilling relationships with others? Will What will their behaviors be like? You know, because interacting with someone virtually is very different to interacting with them in person. So I think as a, as a therapist and as a teacher, or whatever you want to call me, behavioral scientist, I think that's one of my my sort of alarm bells ringing. You know, how are we going to adapt if we're in this for a longer period of time? And, and we will be because even if we come out, it will be in stages. And then there's no guarantee that we might not, you know, there's no guarantee that we won't have a second part. So we might sort of come out, have a few months of normality to a degree and then you know here in the UK there I know they're really concerned about it coming back in the winter so you know how do you balance that how do people balance that with their mental health you know because you've got to keep hopeful but again if you're being subjective to negative or biased information goes back to programming AI, it goes, it, it, you know, one, one feedback loop goes into another. So for me, this is what I find interesting. And I hope that your listeners have understood 
our conversation and and to see how it all sort of like loops into each other from all of these multidisciplinary fields. Where can people find you on on the web? There, there's I feel like this conversation is just starting, and right now yeah. it's more relevant than ever. Um, if people want to connect with you or they want to learn more about this or more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, so well, we can always do another. We can always do something else at, at some other time if you'd like to sort of like can you know continue it. Um, but they can find me on um, my website is lifestyleguruonthewater.com. I am on Instagram under my name. Um, you, they can also uh, link with me if they're more professional, you know, if they're not more professional, if they're working in technology, they can hook up with me on LinkedIn. Um, all the connections are on the homepage of my website, uh, which also has, you know, basically just a recap of what we were talking um, about the book. So yes, just Slim of on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, I don't, I don't really, do, I am on Facebook, but I don't really do Facebook. <laughs> for the people who are, who are listening. Yeah. So um, it would be the website. So you can find me on Instagram or you can just reach out to the website, which is lifestyleguruonthewater.com. And I'll include links to all of the things that you just mentioned in the show notes so people can just tap it nice and easy. Yeah, that would be yeah. great. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah I, it's a, yeah, I think it will, it would be really nice to hear, you know, what your readers feel, you know, is it always, it, it's nice to, to sort of hear if you've touched a nerve or it's sort of like resonated because I remember <laughs> when I was, when I was first pitching the book, and I was standing in front of all these people. I was like, oh, God, just grab, swallow me up now. You know, I was like, will people get this? Because it's, it's not a traditional self-help book. It's not a yoga book. It's not a tech book. It's like accumulation of all of that in one book. Please let people get it. So it's taken a while for me to sort of craft it. But I, I'm, I'm happy that you get it um, because I think if you get it, your, your listeners will get it. <laughs> Yes, I think it's more relevant now than ever. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, there's so, I mean, it's just, you know, so much. And also what I would say is people can also become actively involved by taking my current research survey um, to around their behaviors around technology, which is also on the website under the book section. So there's um, a synopsis about the book and then there's a click to take them to a survey should they wish to participate. Awesome. So yeah, if you go into her website, they can find that link there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing your wisdom. Uh, I just think it's been fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate. And, and I look forward to more conversations in the future and just seeing how things progress. Yes, I think it's going to be, I'm really excited to see how the book progresses. Because when I started writing it, I was told just to write the first two chapters. Um, because when you go for a traditional publisher, they only want to, you know, they only want the first 10,000 words of a manuscript. And I'm really glad that I only did the first two chapters because I think 
what I had planned for the latter chapters is relevant, but it needs to be tweaked that people can resonate how they can put that, fold that in to the current situation that we're all experiencing. So I mean, it'd be interesting to go through this journey with you. And I'm so glad that you, that, that you, you find my work fascinating. That's, that's really good to hear. Yeah, I am all about it. I, I love, I love the future. I love how things are progressing, the evolution of society. I think it's all just simply fascinating. And with the spiritual touch with, with that Eastern philosophy, I think it's, it's the full package. I think that's it. Yeah. And we're ready. We're so ready. Yeah, we're, we're so ready for that. Thank you so much again. And I appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. You're welcome. So thanks so much, Michael. And I look forward to, to getting the link for the podcast. <laughs> I will send it over. Yes. And everyone who's listening, thanks for listening. Subscribe if you haven't. And see you next time.